The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. We're going to kick things off as we do every day with the afternoon update, catching you up and all that has uh, happened throughout the uh, early afternoon. And with me uh, today, Laura Donnelly uh, from our newsroom and Ian Power, the CEO at Spun Out. Uh, you're both very, very welcome. Uh, good to see you both. Um, I might just give a little health warning because I'm conscious, uh, you know, people have been collected from school, maybe people on, people on the way home from school. And the first thing that we're going to talk about, it's not the only thing we're going to talk about, but the first thing we're going to talk about and maybe if there's little ears present, you might want to distract them for a few minutes uh, because it's a kind of a harrowing, not a kind of a harrowing, very harrowing uh, story. And it is uh, the murder of uh, Brianna Jai. So, Laura, can you talk us through what happened today in court in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. The girl and the boy who were found to have murdered the teenager Brianna Jai in Warrington last year can be named for the first time. And they are 16-year-olds Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe. They were 15 at the time and were found guilty of a disturbing plan to to murder um, Brianna in what the judge described as a ferocious attack. Um, so Brianna was stabbed and she um, it, it has emerged that she arranged to to meet these people in a park. Each denied murder, blamed the other for the killing. The detectives who investigated described it as horrific. So in the course of the trial, the media were banned from naming them, obviously over the four-week trial because of their ages. They were found guilty and the judge had said in advance of today that the press could then name the two at their sentencing hearing today. That followed an appeal on behalf of a press agency, the PA agency. The trial heard that the pair had a fascination with violence, torture. There was diaries found outlining how they were going to to carry it out. The judge said they'd lied throughout the trial and that they had found that they had um, expressed a desire to kill someone. And sadly, Brianna was their target. So they befriended her, looked to meet her in a park where she got the bus, kind of joked with her beforehand not to get a return ticket for the bus. Like they were, t- they were, they had really well planned what they were going to do. So it's absolutely horrific. It is really, really horrific. We might come back in just a moment um, to that issue, the naming of the the, the two found guilty today. But uh, there are obvious differences, but echoes nonetheless of of kind of Anna Creedle, isn't there, Ian? In, in how she was kind of she was uh, singled out and then lured to her own death. Yeah, and her father has been speaking to Sky News today and I think that's one of the things that he highlights as as the, one of the most troubling and difficult things for him to kind of deal with in the case that she was sitting on the bus going to this park and, you know, not knowing what was about to, to kind of happen to her. Um, there's loads of horrific details really in this case. You know, there's three children involved. Um, one is dead after a horrific murder. Um, and, you know, even when you look into the details of what the 15 year olds were doing, firstly, they're clearly unwell themselves. You know, um, they, they've got various different mental health difficulties Um and also how they were able to access the dark web and watch a lot of this stuff. So they were watching videos of people being tortured in various parts of the world, people being murdered. Um, and what does that do to the brain um, as it's developing at 14, 15 years of, of age? You know, it's, yeah. just, it's really troubling and it's, you know, potentially something that we're not really even aware of. We're talking about online harms in terms of bullying and cyberbullying and pornography. But actually, how much do we know about how, how many young people in Ireland are accessing the dark web? It's potentially a question to ask Niamh Hodden when she's in with you later. Yeah, I know it is. It's a very good question uh, to ask her because, I mean, parents and I'm a parent, Laura, and, and we're kind of terrified at the prospect of our children venturing into this online world and then you read some of the 
the detail in today's judgment and detail in the case. And as Ian set out, kind of downloading, you know, the software that allowed him to access this and, and the videos these were watching as young teenagers. They, they were kind of 14, 13, 14 years old when they started watching these videos. Yeah, absolutely. And most parents I know, it, when they do get to that point of giving their, their child or their teenager a phone, they do all the things that you're advised to do. They put the guidance on, they put the apps on where you can track them. Every, no parent, you know, wants to give their child open access to a phone or the internet. And as you, as Ian mentioned, Brianna's uh, parents have spoken out, her father in particular, saying today, what's the point in, in naming these people? He says he doesn't want their names ever said. He wants them to be forgotten. But if we look back on the details we've mentioned now and how they were interested in um, deaths and killing, you know, they could probably want this kind of um, coverage as well. That often happens. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because to, 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 to focus on that issue for a moment Ian, I mean, have you a view on on the decision to name them? Yeah, I mean, I think let's maybe set in terms of setting this case aside and taking it at kind of face value, because there's a lot of emotive, obviously, today. And, and today yeah. we're talking about retribution and, you know, it's, it's you know, the parents have described them as evil and monsters and all of those things are warranted things to potentially say today. Oh, if you're uh, a parent and you're not saying these things, absolutely. It, it'd be, it's the natural it, it's, thing. It's understandable to yeah, say that. hundred percent. But maybe I think just to, to kind of remove ourselves from, from this circumstance, I think we've come to learn a lot about what is counterproductive in terms of the criminal justice system. And, you know, I, I've done some work in the youth justice area. And the reason we have these uh, measures in place to, to kind of restrict the reporting of the names of children is because, and we know they've now since been sentenced to 22 and 20 years respectively in this case, we know that the child, uh, pe- children who are convicted of crimes will be back out in society. And, you know, as we're talking about the details of this particular case, it's very hard to see, and I'm sure it's a remote possibility that, you know, you know, in terms of rehabilitation, but we kind of have to keep the hope that we can rehabilitate people because ultimately the job of the criminal justice system is not to, you know, it's obviously to arrive at a space of, of justice, which it has today, um, but it's also to kind of have our long-term interests at heart as a society. And actually, if we, you know, prevent uh, people, in particular children, from actually being able to be re- rehabilitated, that is a cost to society further down the line. It means the rest of us, we're not safe, you know, uh, when people ultimately are released. Um, and, and so really, that's kind of the, the space that I think we need to be talking about. You know, it, it also has echoes of, um, the, the the Jamie Bulger case as well. I, I, that's exactly what I was thinking about as you were describing it and the circus that surrounded yeah. those two individuals being released from prison. Yeah, and now look, you know, John Venables has been brought up for further crimes um, and he's he's currently in custody for, for those. Uh, but, you know, Richard Thompson is currently still under like a worldwide injunction in terms of his identity and things like that. And there's, you know, there's not only the cost of that, but also as well, you know, he hasn't reoffended since he's been released. And so, kind of there, there's just there's a lot here and it's very easy to kind of be reductive and say they should be named and shamed and all that sort of thing but I think there, there are wider considerations for society in these in these circumstances and I'm actually really surprised that the judge did uh, did allow uh, I mean I, I in reading her her statements around it she didn't really put a very good case forward for naming the children, mm. in my view. Um, and there's lots of international principles that the UK has signed up to in respect of child justice. Uh, and this kind of goes against it, in my view. Yeah, well, listen, there'll be plenty of coverage, um, I'm sure, in kind of uh, weekend newspapers detailing um, all of the elements of, of, of this case. But as you say, there's a 
three children at the core of it, uh, one of whom uh, killed in the most brutal circumstances as well. And I guess that's what we all need to remember. Um, I, I appreciate that that was maybe unsuitable listening for a lot of little years. So um, I, I hope you're still with us when we move on to the next story um, in our update, which is uh, Breda Smith, the woman who took over from Tony Holohan as the chief medical officer, uh, Laura, is leaving the job. Yeah, the chief medical officer, less well known than her predecessor, Tony Holohan, who was the face of the pandemic for many of us. I'm not sure if you asked people on the street to name the current chief medical officer, they'd they'd be able to tell you much about it in the same way we knew about Tony Holohan. I, w- I wouldn't think they'd tell you her name even. <laughs> <laughs> so after 18 months, she is stepping down and going for a role as a professor in the Royal College of Surgeons. She was 18 months in the job, taken over from Tony Holan, who was 14 years in the role. Obviously, um, it follows kind of an exodus of a lot of staff from that sector. Um, previously, they'd advertised for a deputy chief medical officer and got no applications. So it's this not exactly... This was Roland Glynn's job. Roland he went to EY, I think. Mm-hmm. Not exactly uh, a job that people are, are fighting over, sadly. Um, high paid job. Um, so nice one to get if, if you're if you're interested in it. Obviously, it's a tough year in, in that sector. Um Trolley figures through the roof, as we repeatedly hear, spotlight on on hospitals that are not performing well. So it'd uh, be interesting to see if they if they get much uptake for, for the role. Uh, it, quite quite independent from this specific role, Ian, I mean, that there is the issue of, of kind of a flight of talent from public sector to private. Now, Royal College of Surgeons might not necessarily be your typical kind of private sector gig, um, you know, but... We do have, I think it's um, Danny McCoy from IBEC who describes it as kind of uh, kind of private uh, wealth and public squalor, uh, <laughs> um, you know, in the country. That, that we've got this kind of huge economy on one side of the scale, much smaller on the other. Eamon Ryan talked about it during the week, you know, yeah. the this, this scale of growth in the private sector. And actually the public sector has stayed pretty much as is. And there's an argument and people hate to hear it, that you need a bigger and better funded state. Yeah, it's, it's not a popular conversation to have or a popular opinion to have that actually we need to invest more and potentially people yeah. need to be paid more. Pay, pay public sector workers more and hire more of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it's I a mean, sure way to win a seat at the next election. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked really when I looked at the salary for chief medical officer, 187,000. It's actually like, you know, if you're a hospital consultant, potentially you're on something close, if not more than that. Or if you're a senior academic, you're potentially on more than that. Um, whereas you have the whole responsibility for pandemic preparedness and, and everything else that comes with it in terms of the different policy issues that come across the chief medical officer's desk. So I know that'll be hard to stomach for lots of people who are on much less than that, yeah. uh, ourselves included. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that if we are to get the talent that we want in these public sector roles and um, that are really, really important, then I do think we have to have a commensurate kind of, of pay scale for it. Um, as well, like, you know, this is not the, the first issue we saw that uh, earlier in the week there was a deputy commissioner appointed who was essentially double jobbing in on Garda Shikona because they couldn't get any of the assistant uh, so, you know, kind of folks to, to, to join uh, or to, to apply for that role. Um, and so I really I, I really do think it is time to be concerned about the talent that we have in the public, public mm. sector, particularly in key roles that are responsible for the delivery of huge public services that all of the rest of us rely upon. We're in a pretty much full employment market. And as you say, the private sector is expanding dramatically and there's all of these incredibly enticing and interesting roles for people to, to, to go to. So, you know, in, in in terms of the, you know, Tony Holan, Ronan Glynn, Paul Reed, Anne O'Connor and things like that, I think that was probably pandemic uh, exhaustion and also cyber attack exhaustion. But, you know, they've they've all gone on to really attractive, yeah. interesting roles. And so you can't blame them. Also, as well, the other thing to say is that 
there is a there is a viciousness in public discourse as well at the moment. And, you know, whether it's going in front of an Oireachtas committee or social media, you'd have to ask yourself, you know, in terms of these high profile is roles, it worth is it? it worth it? Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, th- listen, there, there's systematic problems, there's structural problems, there's all of those issues that you'll always have with the public sector. At the same time, there's a large overlap in people who give out about services and paucity of services and will give out about this notion of paying people more money as well to deliver those services. I mean, you know, part of the problem with delivery services is vacancy uh, within the system. We talk about that with CAMs all the time. Yeah. Different parts of the country, they can't hire uh, the people they need. Anyway, listen, we will move on from that because it's the kind of conversation uh, that we've had before and we will have again because those vacancies are going nowhere. Instead, listen, let's talk about the bank holiday weekend. This has snuck up on us. People are calling it the first bank holiday weekend. It's not. It's the second, of course. Yeah, New Year's Day. First bank holiday. I'm looking at producer Claire, who claimed it was the first bank holiday uh, well, of the year. It just flies by, yeah. though. You don't even notice it's great, it. It's the first day it? of the year. So, it is great you know. that we got this bank holiday. It is really nice. I mean, I think, to be honest, uh, you know, January felt like it was everlasting and it was incredibly bleak. Um, and, and to have a bank holiday at the end of it is such a nice feeling, especially kind of as we oh, start spring great. and the, the days start getting brighter. Josh Crosby, our own reporter, has been asking people what they're doing for the bank holiday. I'm heading down to Cork for the Monstrous Crusaders game. Okay, so yeah, that's tomorrow Queeve. in Park Cueve. Yeah. Or they yeah. might be calling it Super, Super Value, Value Park Cueve. Yeah. But uh, so uh, maybe a few sociable beverages afterwards. Or? Well, probably. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no doubt about it. Yes. Yeah. So uh, really look forward to it. And it's a, it's a great bank holiday weekend. Everyone needs it after January. It's fantastic. I'm going to Lanzarote on Monday, so I'm going home to do all my washing and ironing and get ready. And have you got your swim togs and your oh, sunglasses packed? I, yes, of course I do. First thing that went into the case. And what are you looking forward to most now about Lanzarote? Sun, plenty of fish, plenty of wine and relaxation. It's my wife's birthday, so that's my weekend gone. Will you be popping out for a meal or any surprises? Uh, you don't want to say on air, do you? I don't want to say on air, but to tell you what, it's great to have a bank holiday so early in the year. You know, I think Bridget's Day is a great idea. I've got three kids, so I'll be busy entertaining them. So we'll probably meet up with friends, go for lunch. All my friends with kids will just hang out. <laughs> We've got Gaelic on Saturday, ballet, lots going on, yeah. We're going to go out on Sunday night, but unfortunately I'm stuck in work all weekend. But I mean, it's extra pay, so I'm, I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> You're making the most of it on Sunday? Making the most of it on Sunday, working all day and then treating ourselves to going out to Cobber Face Jacks. Yeah, where everyone will be heading this Sunday. So and there. there we go all the time, anyways. And will you be holding off till Sunday or will you be making a three-day affair of it? I don't think I'm able for that anymore, but I'd give it a go. I mean, I'm possibly going out tonight after the rugby game. If Ireland win against France, i got to oh, celebrate. There might be no work done at all. Yeah, there might be no work done at all. I mean, my boss will definitely notice the hangover head on me. <laughs> all right, coppers will be rammed, it sounds, this weekend. Laura, have you plans, bank holiday plans? Not really. I'm glad Josh didn't ask me because this kind of crept up on me. And like Claire, I agree that this um, is the first bank holiday because no. that bl- that blurry <laughs> week after Christmas where you don't know what day it is. We didn't even know that that day was a bank holiday. It's just one of... Just another day yeah. off. Just exactly. another day off. Ian, have you bank holiday plans? Yeah, well, actually, it, last year it was the first year of it and it fell on my birthday. This year, my birthday will be Tuesday, but it's great because you know Sh- that... Shameless. Yeah. Shameless mention of yeah, your birthday. Yeah. So it's great. Like, it's really nice. I always have a, a birthday festival anyway, so it's great to have a bank holiday for it too. Well, I'm going to give a shameless plug uh, for a 5K fun run that's on in Kilkenny, the Kushnoor uh, 5K. And there's a kids 1K as well and there's still time to sign up and it's for a great local cancer uh, charity. Uh, so if you 
you're doing nothing and you're anywhere around the southeast, uh, that is on in Kilkenny Castle Park on Monday. Bank holiday Monday, according to Laura, the first bank holiday of the year. Laura Donnelly uh, from the newsroom, Ian Power, CEO of Spunite, folks. Uh, thanks a million and have a great bank holiday uh, weekend. Terry and Carlos says, Breda Smith is a brilliant medic and a brilliant trad musician as well and better well known than some of you might think. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from 4 on News Talk.